All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open the word of God together this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have this time to come together to reflect upon what you have revealed to us, to come to understand more fully what the Scriptures teach about who we are and who you are, to come to understand the nature of our salvation and, as well, our spiritual life. Father, we pray that as we study this morning that you will through God the Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the understanding of your word and that its application in our lives would be clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we come to a third fascinating challenge from the Pharisees to the Lord Jesus Christ in this book, uh, in this end, as we come to the end of this period in this week of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, before he goes to the cross. In this question, the Pharisees are going to ask him a trick question. They've been asking him these trick questions, trying to set him up, trying to entrap him through some sort of uh, uh, these, these questions that if he answers one way, he's in trouble with one group. If he answers another way, he's in trouble with another group. And so the question that is asked here is, what's the greatest uh, of these commandments? We know that it is a test, and it continues this series of questions because of what is said in the previous verse, that this lawyer asked him this question, testing him. So we have to understand this, this context. It's so important. The more that I study the Word, the more I, especially in Matthew, we've seen this so many times, that these sections, these little stories that many of us are familiar with, are taken out of context, and they're just used to teach different things without understanding the the framework in which they're answered. And so starting back in chapter 21 with Jesus' triumphal entry into, uh, into Jerusalem as he presents himself to be the king, he's challenged by the... Uh, religious establishment, all of the different groups during this this three- or four-day period between his entry and his arrest uh, is a period of confrontation with the religious leaders. And so uh, they began to ask him the basis for his authority, 
and he gives three parables, and these parables we saw must be understood together. Each one of them developed a further, this subtle answer that he gives to his authority, because each of these parables involved a father, something about the father's authority in relation to the sons, and the rejection of that father's authority. And, of course, he is showing that the religious leaders have rejected the authority of God, even though they have all of the religious trappings, even though they are uh, praying frequently in the synagogue, even though they are uh, continually going to their, uh, their schools, their yeshivas, and they're studying Torah all the time, uh, nevertheless, they have missed the point, and they're in rebellion against God. That's what religion is. Religion is man's substitute for the grace that God has revealed in, in the Scripture. Uh, religion is always about man working his way to heaven, and grace is about understanding that God did the work, and we simply accept it. The third thing we noticed about those parables is that each of them is directed to these unsaved, non-believing religious uh, leaders in the um, in the temple area. He's not talking to the multitude. He's not talking to church-age believers. He is challenging these religious leaders because of their uh, false assumptions and the way they, as the sh- as those who should be the shepherds of Israel, are leading the nation astray. The fourth thing we've seen is that each of these case, the, each of these parables, built a case for God's rejection of the religious leaders of Israel, even as they are rejecting Jesus as the promised Messiah. That's followed by these three questions that are covered in Matthew twenty-two fifteen to forty. The first one was a trick question about paying taxes, because if Jesus said it was. Um, uh, okay to pay taxes, he would upset all the conservatives. And if he said it wasn't, then he would upset the Romans. And so th- they think they have him on the horns of a dilemma. And he takes the coin, says, whose image is on it? And they said, Caesar's. And he says, well, render to Caesar that which is Caesar, showing that there's a distinction of realms between that of the secular governing power and that of heaven. In the second question, he's, uh, they attempted to entrap him by setting up this uh, somewhat fallacious hypothetical situation. The Sadducees, who didn't even believe in resurrection, set up this situation where if uh, under the principle of leveret marriage, if, one, if a woman was married to one brother and he died without children, and then she married the next brother, and he died without children, and this went through seven brothers, then whose wife would she be in the resurrection? And so Jesus just confronts them head on and said they err because they didn't understand the Scripture. They didn't really believe the Scripture. So he takes the, he, he immediately turns it back on them. Now, this morning we get to the next, the third question, which, where he is asked, which is the great commandment of the law. And and as we'll see, part of the trick here is that uh, all commandments from God are equally authoritative. And so they think they're going to trick him into taking one over another, and it's very subtle. And the more I'm studying in Matthew, which is the most Jewish-oriented of the Gospels, the more I understand that, that we miss a lot of 
the the nuances and a lot of the uh, innuendo that's going on here because we're not familiar with Judaism. We're not familiar with what was going on at that time uh, in terms of the theological positions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and so sometimes and so we miss the point that's going on uh, in the text. So let me give you a little summary outline of this section from verse uh, verse 34 down to 40. First of all, there's the setup. There's the attack. And the parallel passage for this is in Mark chapter 12, and uh, that's a lengthier, a little bit lengthier account, and gives us some additional information which we will be, which we will be looking at. Uh, Matthew gives us an opening introduction, telling us that the Pharisees heard that this previous confrontation with the Sadducees, who were their sworn mortal enemies, I mean the Pharisees hated the Sadducees, and the Sadducees returned the favor. And so for Jesus to turn the tables on the Sadducees and shut them up, they were rejoicing. They were gleeful. They were just as happy as they could be. But then they still want to trap Jesus, so they they move forward. So that's verse 34. One of the Pharisees comes forward. We're told in Matthew he's a lawyer, but don't think in terms of any lawyer that you know. Okay, this isn't uh, a regular lawyer. This is a man who is an expert in the law of Moses. He is a scribe, we're also told. So um, he is more of an expert on the Torah, and he's the one who asks the question. Then we have Jesus' response, and Jesus is going to answer them, and once again he sidesteps the trap, and he's going to just skewer them with the truth. Remember, the Word of God is like a is sharper than a two-edged sword. And if you want to know what that looks like, there's one right in front of the pulpit. It's a machaira. And the primary function of using a machaira in battle was to stab, was to pierce. And so that's the idea. Jesus just uses the Word of God over and over again just to stick, just to directly stab into the heart of the Pharisees and their uh, their errors. First, he's going to go to the law. He's going to go to Deuteronomy 6, 5, and in Mark it's 6, 4, and 5, which I think is important to understand why he does that. This is a central passage in Judaism. We'll see that significance. And then uh, he cites an additional scripture which he joins to that. Uh, we'll see the significance of this and why they are related together. It's, it's very important. And then he's going to make a final comment that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, you have to understand a little something about, about the, the Bible that they had at that time. The, the Hebrew Bible was divided into three sections normally. The first section was called the law, the Torah which literally means instruction. That's the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and and Deuteronomy. The second division was called the prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, you had the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, uh, Samuel, Kings, and then you had the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Those were the prophets. And then there was a third division called the writings, uh, that would be Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Daniel. Uh, these were the writings. Now, 
often the scripture itself was referred to by either the first division, just called the Torah, but it didn't just it wasn't used just as a restrictive term for the first five books. It often was just used to refer to the whole of the Old Testament as the Torah. Other times they would refer to it as the Law and the Prophets. So, so when Jesus says the Law and the Prophets, he's saying your scriptures, which are the same scriptures we have for our Old Testament, he says all of the Old Testament is basically what he's saying hangs on these two commandments. The, the, everything focuses, everything is built on this framework of understanding the significant significance of these two commands. Then we're told by Mark, not by Matthew, that this scribe who's tried to set him up is taken aback. He, he, he recovers, though. Uh, we know he's trying to entrap Jesus. Jesus sidesteps with an answer he didn't expect, but he responds and sort of repeats back to Jesus what he has said and says that, Teacher, you've spoken the truth. But he's going to try to use this to, again, kind of twist things a little bit. But Jesus says to him that you're not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you've, if you understand this, you've almost got it. You're just, uh, your, your understanding is very close to grasping, uh, grasping the gospel. But in terms of the rest of the Pharisees, we're told by Mark that they were just shut down just like the Pharisees and um, after that, no one dared question him again. All right, let's look at some of these details. We're told in verse 34 that when the interchange with the Sadducees was over with and Jesus has, has uh, shut them down, that the Pharisees heard that, and actually they were just gleeful over it, and they gathered together. This is just a word indicating their, uh, they, they get together as they have in the past. They get together and they're, they're conspiring. They're trying to figure out a way to trap Jesus. So the, 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 the Sadducees have failed and now they're going to come along and try to entrap him. Their goal is to show that he can't possibly be the Messiah that he claims to be. Their goal is also to get him to make some sort of self-indicting statement that would bring him uh, uh, under under the guilt of the law so that they could condemn him because their desire is to completely do away with him and to and to have him killed so they're conspiring together and one of them comes forward we're told in verse 35 he's identified as a lawyer uh, this is a Greek word, namikos, which indicates that he is a specialist in the Torah, the Mosaic Law. Uh, he's not like the kind of lawyer you would go to if you uh, had a traffic ticket you wanted to fight or you had some other problem. Uh, this is someone who is a specialist in, in the law. Now, when we look at the parallel passage in Mark twelve twenty eight, it says, Then one of the scribes came. Now, this isn't a contradiction, which is what some people go, oh, see, Mark has him one way, Matthew has him another way. But among the Pharisees as a whole, which was a, a, a religious group, a very conservative religious group uh, among the Jews, you had different uh, men who were part of different occupations. A scribe was someone whose responsibility was to carefully uh, copy the text of Scripture. 
And one of the things that uh, we do, we sit down, we start to copying things out, and we make little mistakes and things like that, and so we, we don't quite understand that's not how they did this. If you've ever looked at a Hebrew manuscript, you realize they have uh, unique blocked letters, and, and they would memorize the text. If you were a scribe, you had probably had the entire Old Testament memorized since you were, at least by the time of your bar mitzvah, when you were 13 years old. You could cite the text. You could um, be blindfolded, uh, and somebody would open the text to a given page and pick out a verse uh, reference or, or pick out a section and begin to quote it, and you could finish the quotation from memory. You knew everything that was in the text. You were a specialist uh, in the law. So when they would copy, they would have the parchment, and they would be, begin with, with songs. They would have every verse would have a song that went with it, and so they would be humming that, singing that while they were copying the text, and they would begin with each letter. And the first thing they do, they do is they draw the outline of each letter. And so after you've drawn the outline of the letter, you can see the word, and then they would begin to fill in the, the outline of each letter. And so then they have one word down, and then they move to the next word. And so it's a very careful, painstaking procedure, but they have all of the Scripture memorized. So we know this is a scribe who knows the the Torah frontwards and backwards from middle to each end, and he is also a specialist in the law. So he is the one who is put forward to uh, ask this question, which will trap Jesus. He Matthew records it as what is the great commandment. The idea is that uh, he probably said, what's the greatest commandment among them? What is the first commandment? So he would have not just said it in one way, but probably asked the question using a couple of different uh, words to express the idea. And he's looking for Jesus to make a decision of which of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in the Mosaic Law itself, 613 commandments was the greatest. But among the Pharisees, they not only believed in the 613 commandments, but after the uh, after God had the southern kingdom of Israel uh, destroyed by the Babylonians, after their return, because they had failed in terms of idolatry, and that before they were disciplined by God, they were very careful after they returned, uh, not to succumb to idolatry again. And so they wanted to make sure that they wouldn't violate any of those 613 commandments. So for each commandment, they developed a system of additional commandments, and they called this offense. And these additional commandments were such that if you didn't violate those commandments, then you surely wouldn't violate the center commandment, which was what was in the Word. And so these additional commandments were a fence to protect you from violating the core commandment of the 613. And so that, that, that fence became known as the tradition of the elders. And the problem was they made that as authoritative as the scripture that came from God. And so not only were the Pharisees insisting on the obedience to the 613 commandments, but to a whole host of hundreds of other uh, commandments uh, beyond that. 
Now, they had divided the 613 commandments this way. They said that there were 248 affirmative precepts, that is, positive things, such as obeying the Lord, keeping the Sabbath. Uh, then there were uh, 365 negative precepts, uh, 248 affirmative precepts. They said that was as many as there are members or bones in the body, I'm not sure if that's a correct uh, today in our understanding, but that's what they thought. And the 365 negative precepts, they said, were as many as the days in the year, and the total of which was the 613, including the 10, um, the Ten Commandments. That's called the Decalogue, or the Ten, or the Ten Words. So this is how he is trying to uh, entrap. Uh, Jesus is by getting him to take one, to pick one, and elevate it uh, over the others. Uh, now, Jesus' answer is is quite sophisticated as he answers it. And I want to go to the Mark passage in order to get a fuller look at the answer that Jesus gives, because Mark has him citing not just Deuteronomy 6.5, but also Deuteronomy 6, uh, four. Uh, six, yeah, starting, well, actually, in Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 is a very famous central passage to Judaism. Deuteronomy 6.4 begins, Hear, O Israel. Now, the Hebrew word for hear is the word shema. That's the form that would be an imperative or a command, and it means to listen. Some people putting it in the vernacular would say, listen up, pay attention. And it has the idea not only of hearing, having your ears stimulated, but hearing with a positive, obedient response to the command. So it, it was called the Shema, and that is central. This is recited several times a day by a Pharisee. Uh, even today among Orthodox and maybe some conservadox Jews, the Shema is the central command. So what's interesting is he's asking sort of this trick question like, do you pick which of all these commands by God, which because they come from God should be equal, you pick which one's the best. But what Jesus does by quoting the Shema is he says, you guys have already done this. You recognize that some commands are weightier than other commands. So I'm telling you that if I pick one that's greater, you already have also, so that's not a problem. He's just sort of turning the tables on them. So Mark has the whole quote there, Shema Israel, uh, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Achad in the Hebrew, and it's the Lord our God, and then it's usually translated, the Lord is one, but actually in the Tanakh, the more recent Jewish publication society translation of the, of the Hebrew text into English, they translate it, the Lord alone. Now that's a big difference between the Lord is one and the Lord alone. Because you see, if you talk to uh, somebody who's Jewish, they say, well, one of the problems we've got with you Christians is you think Jesus is God. We only have one God because the Shema says that the Lord is one, and they interpret that as a uh, as a singular 
uh, being, that he is, uh, he is one, he is uh, a singular monotheist, whereas Christians believe in a Trinitarian or a three-person, a one-essence God. And, um, and so Jews will go to this particular passage, but it has been argued by uh, Christians for centuries that the word echad, that is translated one, does not refer to a singular uh, Unitarian being, but it is a one that has a multiplicity with it. Now, that's a confusing concept for some people, so let me bring, bring it down to where we can understand it. In Genesis chapter 2, when God brings Eve to Adam, Moses writes that now the two will become one flesh. Echad, it's the same word. It's a singularity with multiples within it, okay? So in a marriage, you have one new unit that has come together. It's a unity, but there is, there is within that unity more than one person, okay? They have become a, a, a new entity. Another way that you can understand echad is that in some contexts it means something alone. Now, if you read the whole context of Deuteronomy 6, it's, it's preceded by this prohibition of idolatry. They are not to worship the other gods. They are to worship only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, as the Tanakh translates it, they understand it contextually that this doesn't mean the Lord is one, but that the Lord alone will be worshipped. You don't worship the other idols. You only worship God. So it doesn't say anything about the singularity of God. But the word itself also allows for multiplicity within that. So this is an important thing to remember if you're ever talking to or communicating with someone who's who's Jewish, uh, and this comes up, you can always say, well, even in your English Tanakh translated by the rabbis, they understand that this doesn't uh, mean uh, a, a singular a singular unity. So Jesus begins with the, with the Shema, and then he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, there are four things that are cited there by the Lord, a heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we'll look at that uh, here, that these are the different words. The first word that I have highlighted is the word love. You shall love the Lord your God. And this indicates a certain kind of love. It is in the Greek, the way the Greek is translated this with the verb agapao, it draws a distinction between that word and a second word that, that is used in the Bible for love, and that's a word, uh, for, uh, the word phileo. Now the difference is phileo has the idea of a more intimate and maybe a little bit more emotion-oriented love, whereas agape is more of a mental attitude. And see, when we love God, it's, it's okay to express emotion when we love God, but sometimes, just like our own family, there's sometimes when you have kids and your kids are not obedient, and you love your kids, but you're not feeling very loving. I think we can all relate to that. Sometimes as kids, when our parents disciplined us, we loved our parents, but we didn't feel like we loved them. 
You know, love is not primarily a feeling. That's what the English dictionary says. But when we look at Scripture, love is more of a mental attitude that's grounded in a commitment to a person. In fact, it's really grounded in a legal commitment that we refer to sometimes as a contract or a covenant. When two people get married and they come and they stand before a pastor and they make vows that they will love the other person uh, in in uh, in, in uh, prosperity or in suffering and adversity, uh, whether richer or poorer. I always say what they hear is whether richer or poorer. In uh, prosperity and adversity, they they never hear 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 the negatives. And, and yet those are, those are very real and, and I've come to realize dimensions of that in, in recent years several times. Um, I was always aware of that to some degree as a kid, but it wasn't until I was an adult that I did because, uh, my parents were married in 1946 and in 1952 when my mother was, they were married in 19, excuse me, 1948, when they were, um, when, in 1952, when they had been married for four years, and my mother was, um, at that point, uh, 26 years old, she had polio. And she was paralyzed from, from almost uh, basically the, the diaphragm area down. And so, uh, in many cases, and I know of some, you have men who they're just not going to stick around, and they're going to be gone. And yet, when my dad made a vow of faithfulness and to take care of his wife, whether it was in prosperity or adversity, they faced a level of adversity four years into that marriage that would shape the rest of that of that marriage. Uh, that's what, what's necessary. And I've, I've run across other situations similar to that. I know of a, of a man who is a, uh, who lives out in, in Arizona. And he and his wife were driving, um, uh, were driving home, uh, late one night. And they were, um, they were driving along, uh, on the, on the highway. And he pulled out, uh, to pass the car in front of them, only to discover that somebody's car had broken down and was lights out parked in the middle of the other lane and at 60 miles an hour he hit that car his wife is paralyzed from the neck down and he takes care of her every day she has a great wonderful mentality and spirit and we also know of others who as they get older one spouse or the other becomes terribly ill with one problem or another and we are to love them. It's a mental attitude. It's not a feeling. And so loving the Lord our God is not a feeling. It is a mental attitude. And it comes from an understanding of the Scripture. We To love God, we have to first know God. We have to understand God. And the only way we can know Him and understand Him is to know His Word and to come to understand who He is. And then we're able to love Him because we know that. And when the Scripture says... Uh, anything to us about the love of God, it's usually connected with, with a measuring device, a metric for figuring out how well we love the Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus says it many times in the upper room discourse. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And we see the same thing in Deuteronomy. There's this connection between loving God and obeying him. And if we don't keep his commandments, Jesus is saying, you're, you're, you really don't love me. If you love me, you'd keep my commandments. And so this is, this is what we see in this emphasis on agapao. You shall love the Lord your God. How much do I have to love God? Well, then we have these four statements. It's with all your heart. This is the Greek word cardia, which it is often used not for emotion. In our culture, we often think of heart as something that, that relates to emotion. But in the Bible, it usually refers to the the centermost part of a person's being, and it primarily focuses on their thinking. And so with all of our heart, and then this is, the, the, I think these, these four words here are roughly used in an in a overlapping, synonymous way to say with every ounce of your being, every area of your inner thought life, of your soul, it's with all your all your heart that relates to your thinking with all your soul uh, that's that's uh, uh, every area of your your thought life your self-consciousness your mentality your conscience uh, with all of your mind that's the Greek word sunesis which means understanding or intelligence see a relationship with God is not based on emotion it's based on our thinking we're to think God's thoughts after him over and over again. That's what the word of God emphasizes. And then the last word in the, in the Greek, it's translated, uh, I mean, the Greek uses the word iskus, which means strength or power or might. But what's interesting in the, in the Hebrew text, in Deuteronomy, it doesn't use the word might. It uses a really unusual word. It uses the word ma'od in the Hebrew. And the word ma'od is a, is a, an adjective which means very. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and very. Now, very is a superlative. It's talking about to the uttermost of something. How much do you love someone? You love them very much. Um, how happy are you? You are very happy. You're talking about the extreme. So th- that became an idiom in in Hebrew for uh, loving to the so, or for something to the fullest extent, whatever it was you were talking about. So uh, he, the uh, in Deuteronomy it talks about loving the Lord your God w- with really every everything you've got, all your strength, all your power to the fullest extent. Is how that is expressed. Now there's a little bit of a difference in the way Mark. Uh, cites what Jesus said and what what Matthew does. Matthew is giving more of an abbreviated account. He's not contradicting Mark. He just he's just abbreviating it to get to the main point of of what Jesus is saying. We've seen this many times as we've gone through uh, these different. Uh, uh, passages comparing Matthew to Mark or to Luke that they will say a little bit more, but Mark is just giving the the core information necessary in order to be able to make his point. Now here's the passage in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the word for heart is the Hebrew equivalent to cardia. It's the word levav. Again, in the Old Testament, primarily has that idea of mind or understanding. Uh, the word for soul is like uh, the uh, word that we have 
in in the Greek, it just refers to the innermost part of a of a person, and then the word maod means uh, very or exceedingly and idiomatically came to being with with much force or, or, or fullest extent. Now, what's interesting about this is if you dig a little bit more into what's going on, that that. In the rabbinical teaching, in the teaching of the Pharisees about God and about the spiritual life and about the commandments, what they did was they would um, um, they emphasized the Shema as the the primary overriding commandment, and so you were to recite this every day and many many times during during the day. And uh, even and one and there were very very few exceptions. Uh, one exception was that you didn't have to recite the Shema on your wedding night. But the story is that one of the great rabbis at the time, this is Gamaliel, who was Paul's teacher, the Apostle Paul, trained as a Pharisee, and his teacher. And it's recorded in the Mishnah that. Uh, on his even on his wedding night when he didn't have to he still recited the shema and so here this is just a, a, a direct quote out of the uh, mishnah in berakot 25 he said to his students did our master not teach us that a bridegroom is exempt from the recitation of the shema on the first night of marriage and he said to them i don't wish to suspend myself from accepting the yoke of ki- the kingdom of heaven for one hour. Okay, so he still cited that. But that's not the reason I put this up here on the screen for you. We're not just going through a little academic exercise and say, oh, let's go see what the Mishnah says. I want you to notice what he says at the very end there, at the very bottom. He says, I don't wish to suspend myself from accepting the yoke of the kingdom for one hour. Now, in Judaism, as they were breaking down the Mosaic Law, they described it in two ways. There were two sections. There's the yoke of the kingdom, and that relates to the Shema. And the Shema is the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was required of all children, all women, all young boys until they reached Bar Mitzvah. Bar Mitzvah is when they become a, a son of the covenant. But then they had a second yoke, and the second yoke was called the yoke of the commandments. That's the 613 commandments plus all the fence commandments that I talked about earlier. So that's a heavy load. That is, that is put on every adult male. They are required that if they are going to be spiritual, they have to keep all the 613 commandments and all of the uh, all of the fence commandments. So that's what Gamaliel is saying here when he talks about the, the, the yoke of the kingdom. Now there's another quote here from, it's a quote from another rabbi, uh, Joshua ben Korha, and he says, what does the pa- passage of Shema, why does it precede that of other commandments? Now what we have to understand is they had sort of a, 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 a three levels of citations for the Shema. And the basic one is, is the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And then they would also quote from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 11. 
And in Deuteronomy chapter 11, at the very beginning of that chapter, it says, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his command, his judgments, and his commandments always. Uh, reiterate, and then each one is, uh, this, and then, uh, excuse me, then in Deuteronomy 11, 13, and 22, it's reiterated, and each time it's followed by a list of things God's going to do for them. So if they are, if they love the Lord their God completely, then God's going to bless them in all of these, all of these additional, uh, additional ways. So, so that's what he refers to here when he says, um, that the Shema precedes these others, so it's it's staggered. And then the third level was a quote from uh, Numbers chapter fifteen forty, which said that you may remember and do all my commandments, um, and be holy for your God. So nine times in Deuteronomy, there's a command to love God that's that's repeated and repeated. So what Rabbi Joshua ben Korah said is so that w- that one may first accept upon himself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. That's just loving the Lord your God. That's not other the other commandments. That's just loving the Lord your God, and afterwards may accept the yoke of the commandments. So those are the two stages. Now that helps us understand passages that we've already studied, like Matthew 11, uh, 25 to 30. And this is a well-known passage. Often it's quoted uh, in reference um, in reference to salvation, but it has a broader application. It also relates to the spiritual life. And in Matthew 11:28, Jesus said, "Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden." Who are those who are laboring and are heavy laden? That's the, those who are following the Pharisees who've had to take on the yoke of the law, uh, of the, the yoke of the kingdom and the yoke of the law. They're overburdened by all these traditions of men. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. See, his yoke is basically the yoke of the kingdom. It's just the Shema. It's just, because that's repeated again and again in the New Testament to love the Lord your God. It's not works oriented. So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Christianity teaches that we don't do anything to earn or deserve our salvation. We don't have to follow a list of rules and rituals and regulations in order to gain God's favor. God's favor or his grace has been freely given to us at the cross. But this has always been a bit of a problem and confusion, even in the early church. In Acts chapter 15, another passage that we have studied, there was a meeting in the early church because there were these Jews that were that were coming in and saying, okay, it's great that Jesus died for your sins, but you also have to follow the law. What are they doing? They're saying you have to take on the yoke of the law as well as the yoke of the kingdom. And so uh, this helps us understand, for example, the situation in Acts chapter 15, which is known as the, um, as the Jerusalem Council. And it starts off, certain men came down from Judea, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What's that? That's the yoke of the law. In verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, why? Because they're saying, no, there's, you don't get saved by following the yoke of the, of the law. 
And so they had this big uh, disputation, and <clears throat> in verse 5 we read, some of the sect of the Pharisees r- rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of the Moses. That's the yoke of the law. And you go on and you read through this section. We come down at the end. Um, we read in verse 10, Now therefore, this is the challenge from Peter's sermon, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? See, that's that yoke of the commandments. Jesus, in his answer of saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is affirming the yoke of the kingdom. Because we have to learn to love the Lord our God with every ounce of our being. Now, as we as we look at this and continue in Mark, the scribe recognizes what Jesus is saying and says, Well, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he, and to love him with all our heart, with all our understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole uh, of all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he is affirming that Jesus has properly properly understood this. This is why Jesus will say, you've gotten close to the kingdom. And then that the scribe says that this is, <clears throat> or Jesus says this is more than all the, or he says this is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He recognizes the principle of 1 Samuel 15.22, where Samuel says the Lord desires more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Has the Lord, Samuel said, as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And so what we see here is Jesus affirming this first part of the commandment, the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's the first part. Next time we're going to come back, and we're going to look at the second commandment that he links together. And this is interesting because neither of these commandments are found in the Ten Commandments. They are embedded within the other 603 commandments that are in the Old Testament, and it's a unique linkage because what Jesus is saying is if you love God, you're going to love one another. And what does John say in 1 John? In 1 John chapter 4, the apostle John says, if you say that you love God and you don't love your brothers, you don't love one another, then you are a liar. So there's this intimate connection between our love for God and our love for one another. And they have to reflect each other because the underlying principle Jesus is saying, if you really love God, then you're not going to have a problem loving one another. But if you have a problem loving one another, then what that shows is you've got a major problem loving God. So next time I want to develop this more because we have to understand more fully what it means to have a personal love for God the Father, and we have to have then, then we can better understand what it means, as the Old Testament put it, to love your neighbor as yourself, but the New Testament expands that and modifies it to you are to love one another even as Christ has loved us, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect and study upon these things and to realize that our love for you is a reflection and a response to your love for us, that you sent your Son to Lord Jesus Christ to die for us. The issue isn't that we are to do something such as obeying the law or rituals in order to gain your love, but that you initiated with your love and sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins that by trusting in him and him alone, we can have eternal life. And only after we have become a believer and have been adopted into your family and have become a, 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 a member of the body of Christ can we learn to love as you have loved us. So, Father, first and foremost, we pray for any who's listening, anyone listening to this message that they would respond by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior believing on him that he died for their sins. And second, we pray that anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ already will come to understand the central role of loving you has in the Scripture, that this is the focal point of the spiritual life. It develops even as we're spiritual infants, but it is only matured as we grow and mature in your word. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us towards a greater spiritual maturity and a greater spiritual growth and not just be satisfied uh, with a mediocre spiritual life. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.